And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Hey everybody, Max Boltman here alongside Corey Pronman and Flow Hockey's Chris Peters for another episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. Really good show on tap today. We just wrapped up the uh, U18 Five Nations Tournament uh, here in Metro Detroit. Uh, a lot of good takeaways coming out of that one. And, and I want to start, Corey, with the championship game, which I know you were really fired up about between USA and Sweden. Yeah, it was a great game. I mean, they, those were clearly, I thought, the two best teams at the tournament. And there's no actual championship game, quote unquote, at these, uh, you know, these four nations, five nations tournament. Uh, I I believe when we do the NHL version of the four nations next year, there's actually going to be a championship game. But usually, they just have all the teams just play each other once, and they hit they they look at the rosters and they guesstimate what the two best teams are. And they were right that it was USA and Sweden. So USA and Sweden just so happened to be playing the final game of the tournament uh, with the chance to, to win the tournament. And it was a great game. Went down right to the wire. Uh, Sweden scores uh, a dramatic uh, last second goal in regulation to win the game after USA was winning going into the final minutes of the third period um, and following uh, that dramatic end where Anton Frondel uh, scores uh, off a design face-off play, uh, uh, there ends up being uh, quite a large uh, fight, I guess if you, you would call it, you know, or maybe more mayhem with multiple fights breaking out between the U.S. and Swedish players and what's developing into a a new sort of, you know, rivalry in international hockey. We usually think of USA and the Russians, USA and the Canadians. We usually don't think as USA and Sweden as prime international rivals, but, but with how many good players both countries have been developing lately and how they keep seeming to meet in extremely important international games at various levels over the last few years, it's turned into that. Um, and I think, you know, this is now the second time a Swedish team, which frankly is, we would probably agree universally, is not the most talented Swedish age group we've ever seen. Um, in both the November and the February tournament, they were outshot badly by Team USA. But in both games, they end up winning. In November, it was, I think, a five-goal comeback or something like that. And then here, it's a late comeback and a dagger right at the end of regulation. I think in November, it was an overtime win. Uh, so I, I think, you know, looking towards the April tournament, USA's who is not in the same group as them, uh, would be hoping to maybe get some revenge. And you talked about you know the age group for Sweden, but the big reason they won this tournament was not necessarily the 06 birth year. It was the contributions they were getting from some of their 07s, especially as you alluded to, uh, Anton Frondel. Right, and like someone like Jacob is Wozniak was 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 on their top six and played on Frondel's wing is very good, big winger who skates well, has skill. Uh, you know, there were some late birth dates like uh, William Eklund's uh, uh, brother, uh, Victor Eklund, w- was quite good. You know, there's some, you know, the the underage goalie uh, for them w- was, you know, really good when they needed him to be in the uh, game against the U.S. But it was really the play of Anton Frondel that stood out there. He was their first line center. Um, you, this has been a team that's looked to other players to be the top line center, like, say, Lucas Pedersen, like Linus Eric- Erickson. Um, in the in past tournaments, but it was really Frondel in his first games with the U18 team that that really stood out. He got, this guy has exceptional skill in hockey sense. He's competitive. He skates well. He seemed to always be around the puck when he was on the ice, and driving the plate, even strength, and making really difficult plays on the power play. Um, two power play markers ended up being the difference there in the game against the U.S. by Frondel. Uh, and this looks like a guy who has 
every indication he's going to be a very high pick next year. Honestly, in the same tournament with James Hagens, I think he's skated right with Hagens. And if you ask me to evaluate them as prospects just based on that one tournament, I would say it's real close. Some scouts there might have honestly picked Frundell, to be quite honest. You know, we'll see. There's a long way between now and next June, and we'll see. You know, there's other names we can throw out there Porter Marcode, even a fellow Swede like Sasha Boumadian, who's, I think, been an exceptional player in the, in the USHL this season, and, and Roger McQueen, several others. But uh, Frondell is definitely one of the premier names for the 2025 draft. Chris, I want to go to you for, for some of the Americans here. And, and we can we can start with Hagens if you want, or we can go to the guy who I think was maybe the bigger story, uh, his line mate, Cole Iserman. What did you see out of the kind of the two headline names out, out of Team USA at this tournament? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there were a lot of, you know, what we've seen before, a lot of the the same kind of games. I think when, you know, when Cole Eiserman plays, you pretty much know what you're going to get out of him at this point. And, and you know, it's typically going to be a goal. It's going to be, you know, something, some, some high end plays, some dangerous plays, some good scoring chances. Um, you know, did he necessarily impact every game, you know, as, as consistently as I was hoping he would at this level? Um, I would say no. Um, you know, and, and I wasn't at the, the final games. I was there for the first three days of the tournament. So I got to see each team twice. Um, and, and, you know, I thought in the games that I saw from him, they, you know, he was, he was fine. And it was, it was just your typical Cole Eiserman game. And, um, the fact that he can score with such regularity is obviously a huge benefit to his game. Um, as far as Hagen's goes, you know, I thought he was a little quieter. Um, you know, he definitely is, is certainly still driving play and, and able to make plays. And, you know, I thought that, that he was, uh, you know, I, I feel like we've seen fewer wow games from him in the last few weeks, um, you know, where I, as far as what I've been watching. Um, and so that was it kind of interesting to see. And, and to Corey's point, you know, when if you if you were just to evaluate Frundell versus Hagens on this on this particular tournament, you know, I, I would have probably put Frundell ahead, you know, the bigger, stronger, fast, not faster, but bigger and stronger player. That was, uh, you know, that that impacted more games in more ways. Um, I felt and was around the puck a bit more than Hagen's was. That's not to say that I'm down on James Hagen's at all because I'm not. I've seen the, enough of a body of work to to have such tremendous respect for the player. Um, but yeah, it was just one of those games. And and really, I think in the end, you know, those two guys got overshadowed by the line that played right behind him in the game. I know we're going to get into that, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you tee that one up, Max. But I mean, it really was. Um, one of those things where where there was such focus paid to them that it allowed other things to kind of work out. And I thought that their USA second line was their best line consistently throughout the tournament. I thought it's interesting. You you don't seem to be super high on, on Iserman's tournament. I don't think statistically he had a great tournament, you know, in terms of, you know, geez, uh, you know, elite scorer. You think of when these junior mm-hmm. hockey tournaments happen, you know, if you guys put up 10 points in four games, something like that, he didn't have that kind of a week. But I, I thought from what I've seen this season, this was some of Eisenman's better hockey, personally. I thought, I, yeah, I, I think compared to the November tournament, you look at those two weeks, uh, and I thought Eisenman was way better at this tournament. He was making plays, he was throwing his body around, he was competing for pucks. Um, he was, I thought, you know, really creating a lot, even strength. And yes, he was getting his goals and, you know, dangerous on the power play. Um, but I thought a lot of the bad habits that I've seen at times this year were not as present. Um, and, you know, we'll see, and I will see how he does going forward in the April tournament, the U18 world championships will be a big test for him. But I think if you, you know, we've criticized Eisenman a lot on this podcast and in my articles, even though I still have player extremely highly rated, uh, you know, for a few key reasons that I think has contributed to his mild slide down draft boards. But I think if he had played like he did this week all season, I don't think we're having this kind of chatter as much about him. Yeah. You know, I think that's absolutely fair. And, and, you know, one of the things that I, I did feel about this term is that I just felt like he played a much more energetic game in general, where, where he was on pucks more. Um, he still forces things a bit too much for my liking, just in terms of the shots that aren't there and, and, you know, the, the different angles that he's willing to shoot from that, that might not be the high percentage plays that, that I think he can make just with, you know, a little bit more stick to on, on getting to the middle. Um, but, you know, I do think that in general, you know, the things that I, that I haven't loved about Iserman's game, I did feel were a, a, a little bit less evident in this tournament. And then also, 
the energy and pace that he played with. Like that's another thing that I feel like his pace has improved throughout the season. Um, I feel like he's he's at least you know it's not he's not going to blow you away in that category, but I do think that he played um, you know with 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 some real purpose in the in the tournament. So I think that's absolutely fair. Um, you know, it's just it's just one of those things where I think we feel like we're you know for me it just feels like something's not quite clicking the way that I felt like I saw at various points last season. Um, but still, I mean, he's still on pace to, you know, at least challenge Cole Caulfield for his uh, goals total. It's going to take some work for him to do it. But I did talk to Cole at the at the tournament and he's like, you know, I asked him, do you think you can do it? And he's like, why not? <laughs> so, you know, like I love that attitude. I think he, you know, he certainly is has this huge desire, um, you know, to score and to play, play the way that he did. So I think that's a good call out, Corey, that, you know, he. He definitely, in terms of how he's played the rest of the season, that was some of his better hockey. I do want to hit that second line that Chris was alluding to, and, and the, the two big players on it uh, for me, Brody Zemer and, and Teddy Stiga, uh, both, I think, surpassed my expectations for them at, at this event. And you look at them, and neither of them has kind of the the natural physical tools that you're looking for in a big-time prospect. But I'm wondering, when you see two guys uh, do what they did at this event, how, if at all, does it change kind of how you view them as as prospects, Corey? Well, I think that line centered by Camille Bitt and Eric, uh, they, they all kind of have a lot of similar uh, traits in their game. They're all good skaters. They compete hard. Uh, there's good skill there. I don't think any of those three players between Bitt and Eric, Stiga, and, and Zemer, you're looking at and saying, wow, that player is dynamic. He has high-end skill. He has high-end hockey sense. I, I don't think that's the case, but they were, you know, they outworked opponents. Uh, they grind them away to even strength, and, and they created chances. Um, but I think the success of that line was interesting because I don't think that's been the case all season. I think it's been more of late that that they've been standing out because there there have been quite a few games where you go to watch this NTDP team, and it's just Hagen's and Eisenman that that draws your attention from a forward perspective. And so I think now you know with the February tournament over, uh, as always with, with Team USA. We look forward to the April tournament and we wonder what changes might be on the horizon here. What, Where are they strong and where do they need help? And I think you've always looked at this forward group all season and say there's depth issues here. Maybe after the February tournament, they're thinking, hey, our depth issues aren't as critical as we once thought. We may not need to add three forwards here or something along those lines. It may not be a situation where we got to call up multiple players from the 17 team. Um, but there's a chance, you know, maybe you got to bring up one guy. Uh, there is a chance you can might have to add Trevor Connolly from Tri-City at some point. Uh, but I think the, the success of that line makes you think, hey, we've got two lines who can play at this level. But we, we what changes do we need to make to maybe make our team three lines deep? Yeah, and it's it's important to know too. Christian Humphreys did not play in this tournament. I think he's a depth guy that does help them um, in April, so he'll be available going forward. But but also, you know, Max, you mentioned Stiga and, and Zemer. I really thought that Bednarik had a had a really nice tournament um, overall. I thought two way game. He creates a lot of space for those guys. You know, he's the bigger player. He's the center. Um, I, I like the way that he gets you know pretty aggressive in all zones and and is able to get pucks moving. And and then the thing about you know, Teddy Stiga at, at various points of this season has had like these large pops of per production um, that have kind of come come and gone. But the one thing that is kind of constant in his game that I think really does give him a chance and and makes him a bit more of a notable prospect is the motor that he plays with, yeah. the energy that he plays with. He's he's all over the puck and he's you know, I thought that there were a couple games there where, you know, he really stood out in in, in just because of his compete level more than his skill which then he was able to finish plays off of that too. So, you know, I think that that is impressive. I think, you know, you add Humphreys, as Corey mentioned, maybe you add a Trevor Connolly, maybe you add another USHL forward into the mix. Um, you know, well, you'd have to kind of see. I don't think there are a ton of guys in that U17 team that make a huge difference for them at this level, at least at the U18 level, because that's when everything ramps up and we're expecting Canada to have a very strong team at that event. Um, and, and, you know, we're expecting Finland to have some of their big guys back. We're expecting Sweden to probably be better, you know, and, and, and playing with some confidence coming off of these international wins. But, you know, I, I think that there is probably a lot more comfort in that group that they have. And, and I think all three of those guys improve their, their status, you know, as prospects. And I, I've, I've liked Zemer a lot throughout the season. I think that there are flashes 
of, of dynamic elements in his game. At times, it's not consistent enough to say, as Corey said, it's not consistent enough to say he is a truly dynamic player. But you see little glimpses of, of that, and I think he does have pretty good hockey sense. And certainly, you know, he was able to get to the net an awful lot in this tournament, which I thought was a very important thing for this team. They scored a lot of goals right near the net, um, you know, and that's something that you're going to have to do uh, in the international games as well, but really impressive performance from those three. And I think, you know, with the number of scouts, GMs, executives in the building, it was a great time for those guys to really push it. Yeah. The thing I found myself kind of going back and forth on, because really by the second period, I, I had noticed that I had found myself noticing Stiga a lot. And I was just thinking, okay, well, you know, the, the motor, the, like the skate, like there's going to be guys with more enticing physical packages who can bring that. On the other hand, whenever we talk about undersized guys what we say that they'll need to be able to make it are a motor and good skating and so i yeah. i couldn't decide like where to fall on that after after watching him for at, at that tournament my guess is all three of those guys are probably going to be either second or third round picks when it's all said and done yeah yeah and i think that's a fair range um one more thing on the u.s before we hit a break here i, I want to talk about the blue line and i think it's a really interesting usa blue line because you talk about physical toolkits they are not short on that at all. Um, but when I left, I, I felt like I thought Will Scahan was the guy who had impressed me the most of of that group of, of Scahan, Emery, and, and Logan Hensler that we had talked about. Hensler, I, I think, a little more offense. Um, where do you guys fall on, on kind of what you took away from the USA Blue Line this tournament? Chris, you want to start? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that in, in the games that I was able to see of them, you know, there there were certainly some some good and some bad. You know, I I, I think that we saw defensively. You know, EJ Emery, he really can close. He was physical. He was you know making good plays along the wall. He was jumping into the offense a little bit. He's still looking for his first goal of the season. Um, you know, that's a guy that that I think has a little bit more offense than he's shown this year. Not a lot. I'm just you know I'm not saying he's going to be an offensive defenseman, but. You know, I think that there's more than his numbers suggest at this point, and I, I think he's got a high upside. Um, you know, same thing with Skahan. He's good at closing down gaps. He's good at, you know, forcing guys wide. Um, you know, he has the footwork to keep up with them. Um, you know, Hensler's one of those guys that's been a little bit tricky for me this season because I think he came out of the fall classic. You know, Corey and I were talking about this uh, when we were out there. Yeah. Huge fall classic. Like, holy smokes, is this guy going to be a top five pick next year? Um, the skating and the, and the, and everything else. And, you know, I think he's kind of come back to earth a little bit. Um, you know, the offense is fine. He's second power play. You know, he, he does a lot of good things um, with the puck on his stick. I think defensively, there's still some, some improvement that needs to be made. Um, but, you know, we, we always, I always kind of leave him till, till last in terms of the guys that we talk about, but Cole Hudson, you know, I think showed a couple of things in this tournament in the games that I watched um, that can, the compete level that he has, I think, is really, you know, a standout trait for him. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, he doesn't have the physical tools to always make good on that, you know, but he does have the ability to, uh, you know, the willingness to defend, the willingness to, you know, to, to go, you know, have be challenged um, and to challenge uh, opposing forwards and to get in there regardless of the size of the opponent. Um, and then also just, you know, I think we saw very, very good flashes of how crafty he is, how his ability to move pucks. And, um, you know, he, he he's another one of those guys where I think, you know, not necessarily the dynamic element there. I mean, there's dynamic traits that he has. Um, you know, I liked his skating. I liked uh, I liked the way that he was moving pucks. I think his hockey sense and vision are outstanding. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of those guys, it's going to be interesting to see where they fall. There's a lot of debate. You know, you've got big guys like Emery and Skahan who are going to have their fans and going to have their detractors. Um, you know, Hudson's going to have detractors solely because of his size. Yeah. Um, and then I think Hensler, as time goes on, it's just going to be, you know, is he putting it all together? Is the hockey sense there? Is, is there things that he can do beyond the physical tools that he so clearly has? I wish I could add more, but I think Chris <laughs> summarized anything I could say there pretty succinctly. Well, thank you for not trampling over my smart comment. I appreciate well, it. Well, <laughs> because with that time saved, I'm going to sneak a couple more in here because I think we do want to hit some of the underagers uh, outside of Team Sweden. And I think especially really on, on Czechia, Corey, mm, uh, Adam yeah. Binak and, and Reddy Murka. Yeah, Binak uh, was a top player at the Klinka Gretzky, so it's no surprise prize that he would excel again at the U18 event. Uh, really dynamic forward, one of the most skilled forwards at the event to go with great skating ability. I mean, he's extremely talented, but the, the, with, with BNAC, the, the big going forward is going to be 
while extremely talented, he's also extremely small. He's 5'9 on a good day, might be closer to 5'8. Uh, and so I think, you know, where that fits in a draft class is something we're going to have to figure out as the, as the uh, not, well, he's not for this season, but in, in the following draft season. Um, because it looks like a very strong prospect, but because of that size, he's going to need to be just outstanding next season from an offense perspective uh, to be considered a first round pick. And then uh, Murtak uh, is a guy who I really liked at the U17 challenge. And then uh, with Adam Yurichek's injury and, and Thomas Galvas playing pro hockey, they bring him up to this U18 level where he stands out. He was their best defenseman, I thought. Huge defenseman who moves pucks well, competes well, good shot. Skating isn't great, but he's huge. So you you kind of look at the other traits there and think that could translate yeah. to an NHL defenseman. And I, I expect, again, especially with Yurichek out, uh, that he's going to play a very big role for them at the World Championships. And I guess we do have a famous name we should address from this tournament, Chris, and that would be uh, Atos Koivu. Uh, yes, that Koivu, Saku Koivu's son. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think this is a guy that has come kind of out of nowhere to really put himself on the map as a potential draft pick. You know, and, and uh, you know, I think it's he's more than a potential draft pick now. I think he will be picked. Um, and, you know, the thing that, that stuck out to me is that here's a guy that, you know, was not part of the Holinka Gretzky team, um, you know, was, was, a you know, Corey asked him point blank, uh, you know, what were you, were you hurt or, you know, were you cut? And he was, he's, you know, very honestly said, yeah, I was, I was not part of that. I was not picked for that team. And as a result, you know, he, he kind of fell off a little bit behind in terms of how, you know, the draft industry would look at him. But over the course of the season, he's been a better than a point per game player at the U20 level. He's made his Liga debut already, which is something that he said even surprised him. And then he goes and he's basically a top six forward on this Finnish team. Now, yes, they're missing some of their top players, but he steps in and he makes an impact in the game. Now, he, he only had two points in the tournament, so we're not going to say like, oh, this is an amazing you know, event for him. But he did have a significant impact in, in their game against Sweden at the very beginning of the tournament. Um, and, and, you know, kind of, you know, showed that there are some traits there. He's a, he's a pretty solid skater. He's competitive. You know, he, he got to the good areas and, you know, I think that there's going to be a lot more to be learned about him as, you know, we go forward, but this is one of those players where sometimes it's a guy like him that, you know, Hey, I wasn't really thinking about him too hard about, you know, as, as a potential draft pick. Uh, but now you say, okay, well, now I need to go back. I'm going to watch some more video of him. I'm going to watch, I'm going to see exactly what he's doing. And, you know, certainly the name doesn't hurt. I think that NHL teams love uh, the sons of of former players because there's a certain level of professionalism that tends to come with those players. And I think you talk to Atos for five seconds and you see that shine through. I mean, just a, a very personable young man, honest, direct, um, and, and clearly, you know, a guy that's just still figuring things out. And um, I was, I was just, I came away you know, excited to learn more about the player. Um, and obviously that's going to require more homework, but I, I, I think for, for me, that's a guy where I come out of that tournament and say, okay, I got to keep a closer eye on him. Good bloodlines, what they call that in the baseball world. We're going to take a quick yeah, break. That. Uh, that's right. On, on that note. And we will get back and we're going to talk about uh, some of the prospects of note as we approach the NHL trade deadline. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, we're back. And gentlemen, I don't know if you've noticed, we are only three weeks, I think in exactly three weeks from the NHL trade deadline. Uh, and it, we've already had a couple, obviously, big names on the move, of course, uh, Sean Monahan and, and uh, Elias Lindholm. But I wanted to gauge kind of 
where you're at on some of the prospects who we sh- should be monitoring. I think uh, some of the names out there, there's there are a couple big ones. I think you know recent top ten picks, Capo Caco, who I don't know if we're calling a prospect anymore, uh, and Philip Broberg would probably be the two that I want to start with. And let's start with with Caco, Corey. Like, where do you think things stand with with where Caco's game is at? Is this a player if you were the New York Rangers, you'd be willing to move? I would be willing to move him. Um, but I also think he's a good hockey player and I know his, his career has been up and down. Definitely his season has been more of the down variety, uh, this year, whereas I thought the previous season, it was trending in a good direction, frankly, for Capo Caco. Uh, but is the Rangers, I think could be open to doing this because he's not producing right now, because they're trying to win right now, uh, because, uh, wingers is a position of strength for them. Uh, both on their current roster and in their organization coming up. Like they might have to be happy with the progress of Will Cooley. And you got to imagine at some point in the next few years, you can't always bank on somebody picking the 20s to be on your roster, but you got to imagine just how good he's looked. Gabe Perot is going to be part of their team at some point in the next few years. And uh, for, and for all those reasons, you know, well, you know, left right here is progressing. Well, you figure he's going to get paid at some point. You don't know whether you want to really pay Kako. Uh, I think you have to be open to moving him. All that being said, I still think this is a you know a, a good size, powerful winger. He's got very good skill. I think there is more offense in his game than he's shown so far. And you know we've had this discussion with Lafreniere and Kako over quite a few years now already. That in a different team on a different power play, maybe their numbers would look different. I don't think Kako is going to be anything special. I think uh, that dream has probably faded. But if you told me he could become a legit second line winger in another organization, I'd buy that. I'm not saying he's going to, you know, make it be a difference maker, but I think he could be a good NHL player still. And I think uh, I wouldn't sell him for nothing if I was the Rangers. And I don't think that's that's the kind of trade we're talking about. Obviously, you know, there's the, the name. Some of the names linked to the Rangers are are of that kind of. You know, you're, you're talking about guys who can potentially replace Philip Heedle or something in their lineup. So I, I agree. It's it's probably something that the Rangers need to need a really uh, strong incentive to do. Uh, what about Philip Broberg, Chris? Because this is another guy, you know, maybe even in terms of Edmonton, more urgent need to probably go for it, even though I do think the Rangers can can win it. But when you look at where the Oilers are at, it does seem like this is the time to leave everything on the table. Yeah, I mean, you know, I. I'd be very intrigued to know what kind of, you know, what kind of overall value um, he has to to other teams out there. You know, I think that what we've seen from him at the NHL level has been underwhelming, um, you know, to say the least. And then, you know, he's been a solid AHL guy. You know, he's a good skater. He's got size. He can defend. You know, I think that there's there's plenty you know, of tools there. And, and he's still, you know, he's still a young guy. I mean, you know, all, all things considered 22 years old. I mean, you, you certainly would want it to. I've seen some more progression with the amount of time that he spent in North America here and, and, and haven't really necessarily seen it. But, you know, I think that is a guy that, you know, not only should you be willing to move, but, you know, I think that there's there should be teams out there that can see the project in him and and, and the possibility that there's still potential to potentially or to, still potential to mine out of him, um, you know, and maybe given the right opportunity, more ice time, uh, different role. Uh, things could potentially work out for him in another organization. But, you know, I just don't think it's, you know, it's never really particularly looked like it's, it's, um, you know, worked out perfectly uh, in Edmonton. I thought that, you know, at the time of the pick, I thought it was a good pick. I thought it was a guy that, that had, had potential to be a, you know, a top four guy. I think there's always been concern about his hockey sense and about, you know, whether or not he's, he's truly, uh, you know, thinks it at the NHL level. And, and that's, that's going to continue to be, you know, part of his story as, as, as teams try to develop him. but the physical tools, have always, you know, been notable. Um, so, yeah, so I'll be interested to see where exactly what the value looks like for him. I'm not a big fan of like throwing out data. I hate when people make those arguments of like, hey, if this guy had been in this league, if he didn't come up at this age, whatever, because you, you can't yeah. change the past and you can't, you shouldn't throw out data. So like the fact that he has been in the NHL and various stints and hasn't played well in those stints is relevant and important data when considering yes. Broberg. But yes. if I had just told you, you know, in a bubble, Let's just say this is some guy who had played in Europe for his entire career, and he just came over this season. And in this season, he is a 6'3", 6'4", defenseman who skates really well, and he has 19 points in 29 American League games. I feel like if those were the only facts you knew, 
I feel like people would be really excited about that prospect and be like, wow, he has a lot of potential. He's, he, this could be a good NHL player. Um, and like I said, I, I, you have to consider, I've, I've watched him in the NHL this season. You know, I, I've seen that you know, he's throwing pucks away and, and, mm-hmm. and the, the play looks fast for him at times, but there's sometimes when he's going back on pucks with those feet and he's pulling away from four checkers and you're like, man, you know, if he just does one thing different on that play, like that, that's an NHL play all day. And this is a guy who could be a top four NHL defenseman. Um, and he's only 22 years old still. So I don't, he's really interesting one for me. I think there is a market on this player. I think, that if the the Oilers tried to trade him, I think you know he can get a decent return back because for the player type, the position, uh, if if you hit on this guy, I think you would you'll be very happy. Even though I know it hasn't gone that way so far in the NHL. I don't want to take us too down the like speculative road here, but one of the names that you've heard linked to the Oilers uh, so far is Jordan Eberle, who's obviously in Seattle. And that is one that makes me think Seattle does not have a ton of young defensemen with upside in their system yet. They're just such a young franchise. And that is one that like immediately, you know, they, they have Riker Evans and, and they've got Vince Dunn, obviously, and they've got a couple veteran D signed. It's not an urgent need or anything. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but that is one that I thought that could be kind of interesting. Uh, and that's a team that I think, to Corey's point, would see the value in that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that's a that's a good match in terms of the the organization and and you know they're in a position to potentially take a chance on a guy and and give him the the opportunity that you know maybe hasn't been there because um, that's what he know. needs. He, he's going to need opportunity. Yeah. You're not just drafting him to keep him stashed, or, uh, right? Him right, stashed. right. And and maybe like the other thing, just style of style of play. He might fit better with, you know, a Dave Hackstall kind of style, you know, in this, in this time. And, you know, I, I like, like Corey said, I just think that the game moved too fast for him in Edmonton. And then, you know, w- is that because they, they have team speed? Is it because they have, you know, the elite players that they have? Um, You know, that's, that's one thing, but yeah, I mean, quite frankly, I think that that's, that's going to be the thing that, that, is going to be the hardest for me to overcome in terms of viewing his value is just, I, I've, I've long been concerned about his hockey sense, but I think at the NHL level, I, it, it gets exposed. Um, so, you know, that's the thing like Everly, I, I feel like Everly's a player that Seattle, you know, should want to potentially resign. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's the other thing is like, what's the value versus keeping Jordan Everly. And I think the value of keeping Jordan Everly far surpasses the hope of a, um, of a Broberg. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, all right. I want to talk about a couple of the teams that we think uh, could be interesting here. And, and the first one that comes to mind for me is Dallas. They have picks. They can trade picks. But if there's a prospect that they're going to move, Corey, I don't think it's Logan Stankovan. I don't think it's Leon Bischel. Anyone come to mind? I feel like you're leading me to a very particular name. And, and that name <laughs> would be Maverick Bork, who has been one of the top scorers in the American League this season. And I think the conundrum here for Dallas is quite interesting. They have a really good team. They have a very good group of forwards, and thus it's why, despite Stan Coven and Bork having such fantastic years in the American League this year, there's been no opportunity for them to come up and play in the NHL this season. Frankly, even uh, their former high pick Ty Delandria is basically a fourth line forward for them yeah. at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, and you know, I look at Stan Coven and Bork, and I think they're both great prospects. I would lean Stan Coven just because I think there's a skating differential there and an extremely high compete level in Stan Coven's case. But I have a hard time imagining them next season promoting two undersized forwards at the same time, probably who are both going to be wingers in the NHL for them right away. Uh, so I look at Bork in particular, and I wonder, is this somebody who could be put on the block? And... I would have only imagined that would happen with Dallas, given how good a year he's having, if there's a major deal to be had. If there, if they would have been on it, say, Elias Lindholm, that would have made sense. Elias Lindholm gets traded to Vancouver. Who else is out there that could make that kind of intrigue? Well, it probably would be if, if Noah Hannafin came on the block, and now you're thinking of a blue line that has Thomas Harley, who's, mind you, is having a Great. Yeah, I feel like is. we'll talk here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a whole other issue. Uh, Miro Heiskinen. And now you add Noah Hannafin to that blue line. And now all of a sudden, I think, you know, you're cooking in Dallas with with, with that strong forward group as well. And, and Jake Oninger in net. So I think if they can get a Hannafin, then I think Bork makes some sense. Otherwise, I think there's no, you have this guy for, for another, uh, 
year and a bit till he has to hit waivers and you have time to make a decision on where you're going to go with those two small forwards. Yep. How about Vancouver? I mean, they've, they've done Lindholm. Is, are they, in, in your eyes, is that uh, close the door at anything that they do? You, you still monitoring? Because they are the league leading team. Like that, There's nothing that says they can't make another trade here. It would be rare, though, for a team to make two big trades, right? Like they might make a small trade. And that's where I think like you look at the big prospect pieces they had, which would have been uh, Vasily Petkolzin in the American League's former 10th overall pick. And, and I know Niels Hoglander's been playing better lately, but there was a time where he felt like he might be on the trade block there for a minute. You know, both of them not amazing skating wingers, but both have you know legit scoring traits at high compete levels. I don't. I think unless they somehow decided to make yet another big move, it seems very unlikely they would be trading one of their prime young pieces right now. Yeah. As we were kind of prepping the show today, we, we were talking about some of the teams that we might want to talk about, and one of those teams was Carolina, who obviously, as they are every year, is a contender, uh, one of the best teams in the East, one of the best teams in the league. Um, they're also a team that has gotten a lot of plaudits on draft day, I think, over the past several years. A team that likes to stockpile picks. They, they get a lot of the guys uh, that maybe you know fans perceive to have fallen or maybe are kind of fan favorite types. I wonder, when you look at their system today, do you see anyone that you feel like is uh, you know, kind of bait here? Sometimes that, that can lead to a lot of uh, kind of overstocking of your reserve list, so to speak, and you can't sign everybody? Or where, where are you at on kind of what's in Carolina's system and anything you think they could do? Well, I think there's a couple of names that are really intriguing. Like I, I think like Bradley Nato, their most recent first round picks, having a heck of a freshman year at Maine almost to the point where I don't know if Carolina would be willing to, to trade him. You know, I have some minor issues with NATO's pro projection. Um, but I mean, if you like that player then he goes in and has the year he has, I can't imagine they like him less. So I, I think that'd be a hard guy to imagine getting traded. Um, I think you look at some of the more recent drafts and like you said, there's some stuff in there, you know, like I don't think like the 2022 draft, I don't think Gleb Trikozov or Alexander Paravalov have value. Right now on the, on the trade block, Cruz Lucius might have a little bit of trade value. I think Scott Morrow could be a guy that'd be inter- yep. interesting to teams. I, and the fact that he hasn't signed yet, I think, is an interesting indicator to teams right now about where he is in terms of um, his relationship with Carolina. I think you have same some similar questions with Jackson Blake. I think Carolina is in a very interesting predicament because they don't have an American League team. So when you have these college players, it's like, what do we do with these guys exactly? Where are we? telling them they're going to play, how do, how do their advisors feel about where they're going to play. So I feel like those good college prospects like Blake, like Moore, are interesting to follow. Um, I think those are the main ones that stand out to me. Some of their like their most recent high picks, like Noel Gundler, Ryan Suzuki, didn't really age quite well, Jameson Reese. But I think like those college players um, in particular would be interesting. Uh, maybe, like, you know, and I think if they made a big, trade you're talking about their recent high picks like nato or unger sorum but i feel like the college players seem more likely to be to be included in any carolina trade yeah and you know there's an interesting dynamic here the players Corey's talking about and i think you know carolina does get a lot of plaudits from the public um you know when they when they draft well because they are typically a team that does not shy away from smaller players they're a team that does not shy away from you know the the russian skill players you know that that some teams are a little bit leery of and so those tend to be the flashy players that a lot of people in the public really like and i've definitely felt like they've picked a lot of guys that i've liked a lot guys yeah. you know guys like nato guys like um you know uh, uh, uh some of the some of the Russian players they have picked, like even Vasily Ponomarov, who's you know had a decent run in the in the AHL. Um, but you know there there have been plenty of guys like that. the The thing is, is that those are very specific to Carolina and how they draft. It is not in concert with how NHL teams typically are drafting now. They are going with size. They are going with bigger players. And so when you look at their list, I mean, I think one of the guys that has the highest value is probably Nikishin who's their best prospect, but will he ever come, you know, will he ever come over? And that's, that's the guy where it's like, Hey, that guy looks like an NHL defenseman all day, every day. Um, and has not, you know, made the jump over here. And that looks like a tremendous pick. And that's the guy that's more fits with that team. And I'll go ahead, Corey. I know you want to jump. Yeah, I, I can't see him being traded though, unless it's like a Trevor Zekers or something like that, right? Right, like exactly. Right? They shouldn't move him. They shouldn't move him. But I mean the other thing is they have to sign him at some point. And if he doesn't sign, then there's no value to them for him just sitting there. So 
But yeah, that's the other thing is that I agree. Like if it would have to be a massive piece in order to move a player like Nikishin, who's probably the best defenseman, not currently in the NHL. Um, but to get back to that point of, you know, when you draft a certain way and when you draft your, your team's identity, which you should do because, you know, the, you have a philosophy and that's how you want to go. The thing is, is that I don't think it's necessarily getting the kind of players that Rod Brindamore is going to want to put on his roster at this point. You know, that's the other thing is that you, you have, they, they've, they, they are a team that often will trade back and get multiple picks. And so they've built up this prospect system that has, a lot of numbers, and some of those guys could hit. But I do think that there is is something there where they're not getting the same players that are going to be coveted by other teams, which makes it more difficult to trade those players. And then all of a sudden you're in this position where, oh, I have to trade draft picks now because those have more value than the guys that have been in our system. Um, I, and so that's interesting. The trade back thing is interesting because I think that's kind of like the two different parts of their draft strategy is both you know targeting skill and trading back to acquire picks, which I don't necessarily disagree with. I think there's a certain point in the draft where players become indistinguishable, indistinguishable, sorry, from each other. And it makes sense to get two more picks in the early to mid third than to pick in the mid second or something like that. Or, or it's, I know it's not as simple as that typically, but yeah. that, that's, you know, that's what the analysis usually is. But after you get past a certain point in the draft, it's really hard to find players. Like after the top 20, uh, it's extremely difficult to find a full-time NHL player. So you look at all those picks. I think like since 2019, they must have made, I don't know, like 40 picks, 45 picks already. And I think you look at their non-first-round draft picks, and it's really just like Nikishin. And, you know, maybe Blake makes it, maybe Morrow makes it. They're still in the conversation, but it's really only one guy there who you're looking at, you know, other than NATO and being like, yeah, he looks like a real player, but that's what the numbers are. And I, and I wonder if you went to Carolina and been like, Hey, you're going to make whatever it is, 40 picks after the first round in a five-year span. That's a lot of picks, and that's a lot of trading around and moving down in the first round, moving out of the first round, which is the case of the Scott Morrow year, and doing all of that. And I said, if you did all of that, and I only think there's going to be one player from those 40 picks who I think is going to make it, but I think he has a chance to be an impact player. I think they take that all day. Interesting. No, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's especially when you're not picking that high. Like they had Jarvis, I think, in that same span too that, you know, is yeah. – you know, it, and that I think maybe even tips the scales even more toward what you're saying. And but it is a, top, obviously. Yeah, in fact, uh, was that? Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's that's in that range. Um, but I, I do think Chris's point is interesting because what he's kind of saying, I think, is when you draft a certain way that's maybe against the grain of the league, those aren't players you can then trade to the same league that passed on them later. You're you're really betting it's 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 us or it's nobody, right? Yeah, I, I don't. When I've been asking around the league, I don't get a sense of a ton of interest in some of their top prospects like i know i do think like there are some like i said i think nato moro blake and obviously nikishin's a whole other conversation billy koivin in it all yeah he's a maybe ugger storms a maybe i think there's you know like i said that's the player type they're not great skaters yeah, right, but they're both right. highly highly skilled so you need to, if you're gonna get that guy you need to feel confident he's gonna be on your power play and like those are those are you know those are that those are the conversations you would need to have about those players all right, one more guy I want to ask you guys about before we hit a break here. Uh, maybe not as big a name as some of the ones we talked about at the beginning. It's Seamus Casey, who was not a top 10 pick. It wasn't actually a first round pick. He went, uh, I think, in the mid 40s a couple years back to the Devils. But he's producing at a level at, at Michigan that does surpass kind of that draft slot. And usually I think that's the kind of player you're talking about is, oh, maybe this is a little bit of a find. In New Jersey, I wonder if that's even possible with the the kind of power play quarterbacks that they have with Luke Hughes and now with Simon Nemitz and obviously Dougie Hamilton is still signed for several years there. It's really hard for me to see a world where Seamus Casey is ever a New Jersey devil, given all that. And yet he's producing in a way that tells me we should be more excited about him. And usually that is the conditions that I, I see for a, okay, this prospect obviously looks like trade bait to me. Am I way over my skis there? What, what do you read on, on Seamus Casey, Chris? I, you know, I don't think you're, I don't think you're, over your skis, but I do, I, I mean, I do think that there are, 
certainly, you know, other factors at play. I mean, you know, he still is a an undersized defenseman. I think he's a really good skater. I like the way that he defends. I mean, I like the way that he played it at the World Juniors and and certainly have how he's played here. And, and you look at the production and the, the historic comparables and, you know, it's guys like Adam Fox and, and, and players like that in recent memory that have put up those kind of points. I mean, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that Michigan has like five of the top scorers in college hockey right now and are one of the worst at giving yeah. goals up. They are they are bleeding goals like you wouldn't believe. And so, you know, defensively, I do have some concerns about, you know, exactly what kind of value that creates for Seamus Casey. There's no doubt that he's skilled. He's highly intelligent. I think that he's a competitive player. Um, I like I like him a lot. And I do think that there are teams that, that will see that. But I, I don't think that the market is gigantic for a player that kind of fits his physical profile. And then also, you know, just kind of the situation that he's in right now where we're really that's a team that just really can't defend. They're not getting goaltending, um, you know, so that makes it a little bit more interesting. But um, I do, you know, I, I think clearly, you know, New Jersey's in a situation where they have a surplus in that particular area and it makes it much easier to deal a player like that, um, you know, at least to make the decision that that player is available via trade. I think it's going to be, you know, the market might not be as strong in my opinion, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Corey thinks on that as well. Well, it's a similar situation to why they traded Shakir Makamadoulin this time last year, right? The same yeah. thing, too many defense prospects. He's a good player. Uh, you know, we think he might play for us, but probably not in a position where it maximizes his value. That's probably the same case, you know, with Casey this year. I'd argue Casey's value is lower at this time than Makamadoulin's, right. but, yeah. but not, but not significantly lower, but, but definitely lower. Um, the other, you know, the other angle too is that we talk about. Well, New Jersey looks at their team and thinks, well, where does he fit? Maybe he's a trade asset for us. The other angle is, what if Casey looks at their team and says, where do I fit? Yes. You know, do, do yeah. I want to? Do I want to sign here? And that's often what happens with college players. And you know, we talked about this with Carolina earlier. Like, where are they going to play in the American League? A lot of NHL college players who are top prospects will look at teams and be like, do I fit in this depth chart or not? You know, do I want to play here? You know, do I want to, you know, Shane's Casey's probably looking at seeing him being like, if I sign at the end of the year, I'm probably going to the American League for the next two to three years. So yeah. I think that's yeah. all relevant factors to consider. Yeah. I mean, even, even if it, okay. So just to use another kind of guy of the same height offensive profile, like Scott Perunovich had a pretty successful college career, hasn't yet really broken through in the NHL. I guess to Chris's point, Perunovich wasn't going to be a, a centerpiece of a major trade. But if you worry to Corey's, like if you worry, you're not going to be able to sign this guy anyway, and you can use him to get a piece for a team that I think can still make the playoffs this year and even win a round or two. I, I, just, I don't know. It just it strikes me as something that's worth monitoring personally, and for the, sure. And if, the, and if the Blues had traded Perunovic after his, you know, his his big final Junior season year. there, I, yeah. I think he would have been able to fetch them at least a reasonable return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a Max, real quick, just to put some. Just to context to your what we were talking about with Seamus Casey, U twenty defenseman over the last twenty years, fifth highest points per game average this season for Seamus Casey. The other guys ahead of him are Lane Hudson twice, Zeev Booyam <laughs> this year, and Luke Hughes, and then Adam Fox is just behind him. Jake Sanderson just good behind company, him. yeah. Jack Johnson just behind him. So uh, those are those are the players that that you know what he's doing this year. There is no question; it is special. I just want to make that clear as well. Is it special if the four better seasons have all happened in the last 18 well, months? <laughs> well, I mean, historically it's special. <laughs> there is there it's fair, like there is a trend. Like this is something that we're gonna keep seeing, you know, trend well, this direction. Here's here's the thing. Like, I think that defense defensemen and the offensive defensemen are are we're we're turning back the clocks more to the Paul Coffey Ray Bork era in terms of the kind of style of, of, of offensive defense that we're seeing. Now, these are all those guys I listed undersized defensemen with high end skill. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's an interesting thing. And, and the thing is, is that none of those guys have played an NHL game yet. So we don't know if it's going to work, but we see what we see Quinn Hughes, we see Cal McCarr, we see Adam yeah. Fox, we see these players and they're coming from that same, same pipeline. Um, but this is, I think they have opened the door for players that play like these guys. Um, so, yeah. I always find it fascinating when I've been talking to people this year about like Zeev Boyan and Artie Lashunov, and they'll say, oh, I don't know if he defends well enough this year. I saw something, you know, this guy had a bad game against, you know, this top college team or whatever. And I'm like, have you, did you like, go look at their numbers and compare it to like the last 
top prospects in college. Look at what Quinn Hughes was like. Look at what like Rowenski was like. It's they they're do they are just completely off the charts relative to what we're used to seeing from draft eligibles in college. Even like Owen Power. Yes, that's exactly. Yeah, Levshunov's already ahead of him. Levshunov's already ahead of his point total. It's insane. Well ahead, I think. Right. Well ahead. Yes. Well ahead. Yeah. I mean, wasn't like Zeev Boy? I'm gonna pass like what Beniers and Kent Johnson did in their draft season. <laughs> it's 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 trending that way. It's still on. It's still very. He is ahead of them on points per game. So yes, fun stuff. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. We're gonna come back with a good mailbag. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, let's hit a mailbag to close things out today. Uh, And Chris, we'll start with you here. Habs Draft Nut wants to know, can you compare the games of recent top NTDP goal scorers like Cole Caulfield, Oliver Wallstrom, and Cole Iserman? How did they look at the same age? Any important rhyme between their games? Or anything about Iserman's that make you think he's more like one than the other? I yeah i I think they're I think they're all pretty different in terms of how they score. Like the thing that Cole Caulfield always did so well, um, better than anybody, and you know better than any prospect I've seen is how he pops into space and was able to you know find the scoring areas and and you know had that accurate shot and everything else like that. I think you know I, I do think that um. You know, Iserman is a better skater, has, you know, better, you know, bigger, he's stronger, uh, good size. And so he can, he can score in a few more ways than Cole could um, at the same age. Um, You know, and I think in that way, he's, he's a little bit similar to Wallstrom. I just think that Wallstrom, you were always kind of wanting more from the effort level and different things. And, you know, his game, similar to, similar to Wallstrom, I felt like his game needs a little bit more of a driver, like a James Hagen's, like, you know. I, I thought Wallstrom, when he got with Jack Hughes, it really opened up a lot of scoring avenues for him when Hughes played up as an underager. Um, you know, but I, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, I, I think that Cole is one of the, you know, Cole, Cole Iserman, um, you know, is, is really a, a higher, a higher end scorer, um, you know, with his, I think his shot is, is outstanding. I think, you know, the thing that, it's hard for me to say that he's better than a better goal scorer than Cole. Cause I think Cole thought the game a little bit better. Um, and, and so I think that that's part of it, but you know, the physical tools are the advantage. So I think they're all different. Um, you know, Wallstrom was certainly uh, a score from distance style kind of guy. They all kind of are. Um, but you know, that was, yeah, I, I just, 
it's it, it's there there are definitely similarities in terms of you know shooting deceptiveness of the shot the ability to score from distance those types of things but um i do think that they uh the the separating factor for me was always that i thought that cole caulfield of those three players had the highest level of hockey sense i think eiserman falls somewhere in between yes caulfield yeah. and those other players like i think Man, there's other goal scorers you could talk about, but because they're all program kids, that's why this question comes. And I've heard it mentioned many times this season already. Like, I, I think Eisenman's going to play. I think he's going to be a good top six winger in the NHL. I don't know if he's a, like, a legit star in the NHL, a guy who you think is going to be like a massive part of your team and somebody who, you know, you're, you think you're going to give like a big money deal to and, you know, be really happy to have around for 15 years. He might end up being that. Like, he could be like an Owen Tippett type. Um, but I think like, you know, his comparing him, I think he's definitely closer to Caulfield than he is to the other two. Although kind of like Chris said, I don't think, you know, he has quite has maybe just quite as much pure skill as Caulfield had. Like you, what, you look at some of the hands plays, Caulfield plays with a puck. Like those are pretty distinct. I don't, I think, you know, he would make a few more plays than Eisenman does. Um, but probably Eisenman's a better skater. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is uh, from Ryan who wants to know, can Rutger McGrory be a difference maker in the playoffs for the Jets if he turns pro this year? Corey, we'll start with you on this one. Well, interestingly enough, I was at a Michigan game uh, last weekend, and who did I spot there in the crowd? But uh, Winnipeg Jets general manager Kevin Shevadeoff, who I'm sure was just there on, on a coincidence. But, <laughs> you know, obviously with five nations in the towns, so he was there to see that and and talk to McGrory too as well as part of the recruiting process. Um, I, I would say no. This season, not not for the playoffs. I think that's a year away from McCrory with his skating. I think he's a, been really, really impressive in college. You love to compete. You love his hockey sense. Um, I, I'm not sure what Chris thinks. But I, I I think he's not ready to help the Jets do what they need to get done here in, in, in the spring. I think I would I would lean against that right now. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I, I think, you know, they're just it, it's a big jump. It's a big jump. And I think, you know, you look at some of the players that have made the jump and I feel like they are players that were, you know, physic like had some more of the physical tools, like the skating ability, um, you know, the side, like if it's like you think about Chris Kreider jumping into the playoffs years ago, he had size skating ability, Kale McCarr, elite skater, high, you know, super high in hockey sense. I think that, you know, Rucker has, has a lot of tools, but I just don't think that he would make a big enough difference at this stage of his career to warrant a playoff sp- uh, roster spot. Okay. I uh, actually love to get both of your takes on this one, but we'll start with Chris. Adam wants to know what was the most dominant CHL slash NCAA team you've ever seen relative to the competition. And what was the most stacked CHL NCAA team you've ever seen? If it's a different answer from the first question, which it very well could be. Wow. Yeah. That's something, something to certainly, uh, certainly think about because <laughs> there are, you know, I think, um, I'm thinking back to one of, one of the best, and most dominant teams that, that I saw was that Michigan team with um, JT Comfer, Tyler Mott and Andrew Kopp at the top of their lineup. That was a pretty good one. Um, same North Dakota, you know, North Dakota when they had Besser Schmaltz and Kajula as same their top year. line, the CBS line. Yes. Same year. Um, those two teams. And then North Dakota was the one that won the national championship that year in Tampa. Um, so I think that's, that one is certainly up there as well in terms of the best NCAA teams. Um, you know, I think back to the London team that had um, uh, Mitch Marner, Matthew Kachuk, and Christian Dvorak. It usually comes down to having like that superstar line, that super, you know, and they had other players, of course, but, you know, those 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 singular lines that dominate so much and drive the bus for a team, um, you know, so I, I would say that at least this is, I'm talking more in recent memory, I think the most historic team, I was a kid, but I did watch Maine when they were the, you know, the, the, the one loss team that won the national championship with Paul Korea and, and, and uh, Jim Montgomery. So, you know, but yeah, but I think in, in recent memory, those are some of the teams that instantly come to my mind. Yeah. I wish he would have answered the question as given one, because that's what the question said. Cause <laughs> I was going, to, cause I was going to name the 2016 London Knights with Matthew Kachuk, with Mitch Marner, with Christian Dvorak on them who won an OHL championship and a Memorial cup championship. Uh, that, that was an absolutely loaded teams of other good names in that team. Victor Mete, great junior player, yep. you know, Robert Thomas was a 16 year old on, on that team. There were several other, I think you Levy was on that team at one point. 
uh, you know, that was, you know, you know, an excellent junior team. Um, some of the other, you know, the great junior teams I could would think of, if it wasn't the London team, I would have gone to think of uh, the, you know, the Halifax Mooseheads from 10 years ago, uh, you know, with, you know, with, with Jonathan Drouin and Nathan McKinnon on, on that team, for example. Uh, the Portland Winterhawks around that same time had some absolutely fantastic junior teams as well. So those would be the main names for me that would come to mind. So those are the most dominant, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I, was, like, I would say the, the in terms of even just Michigan teams, there was the one with Power, Baneers, uh, Johnson, Luke Hughes. That's probably more stacked, right? Than even the the Con- well, yeah, they're more stacked, but they didn't, you know. But neither they, they of those Michigan dominant, teams. But, right? but I think you look. Yeah, I think you, yeah. even though they were stacked in the town, I think you look relative to their competition and how they scored, Fair. how they played. I don't think they dominated their opposition routinely. Whereas I think I was just I was looking it up while I was getting ready to answer the question before. Chris jumped in. Uh, the London Knights that year in 68 games played had 319 goals for, uh, you know, in their conference, the next best team had 269. You know, wow, it, it, yeah. it's just, uh, just that there was a different level of dominance. You know, that, that Kachuk, Dvorak, Marner group was special. Yeah. And I, th- I think the Besser Kajula Schmaltz in terms of, you know, what, what they actually did in winning the championship college-wise, I think you'd have to give them the night. Not yeah, they get the edge. They get yeah. the edge for sure. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. Uh, JJ Gab wants to know, Corey, what is it that has Sam Dickinson in the top 10 and Liam Greentree out of it? Obviously, two different positions, too. So they're not really a head-to-head comp. Uh, but I guess you could touch on both of these two guys. Well, Greentree is definitely trending up. I had him around 30 on my last list, and I know I made up. A- uh, a comment with Scott Wheeler on the last podcast. I don't think it's going to age well because just talking to people around the league right now, I get the sense he's really trending up. You made um, a bet with did, him, right? Was this? I, was I this did. Yeah, you yeah. Did? Yeah. Oh yes, and it's not going to go well. Um, <laughs> and but uh, right, let's hope Wheels I, collects on that one. I, I think he's going. I don't think he's going top ten, but I think top twenty is probably the range. He may mm-hmm. not though. A good conversation about Green Tree was having with somebody was like, how would he compare to Quentin Musty? the same age and i think you really can connect the dots there a little bit and musty goes what like 25 in his draft class i'm not yeah. sure he goes much higher if we do that draft i know that's a future question in this mailback is about musty but the big difference as to why dickens is the top 10 prospect, despite not having as good numbers as green tree is the skating ability dickens is one of the best skaters in the draft uh, and, and green tree among top prospects would be among the lower end of the top prospects in terms of skating ability and that's the big differentiator green tree has more skill than dickinson uh, probably and definitely better hockey sense, uh, but but Dickinson is a far far better athlete and absolutely premium looks like position an edge, too. Pre- premium position, yeah. and you know you, I think you look at Dickinson and you think if he hits, if the offense translates and he hits, this guy could be Jake Sanderson. Yeah, uh, and and I think with Green Tree the path is much more narrow uh, to becoming an impact NHL player. All right, uh, Chris, we'll go to your, you with this one. Uh, Michael wants to know, did Leon Bischel make the right choice to go to the SHL this year? Has it pushed back his NHL readiness at all by not playing on North American ice? Oh, no, no, I wouldn't think so. I mean, it's not like, you know, if this was uh, some uncharted path that that we hadn't seen before, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, the decision necessarily was wrong. I mean, you look back at, you know, basically more cider went to yeah. the AHL, had to return to Rogla, um, you know, I, I think that that's that that him going back to Europe isn't really going to change that. I mean, I think the the questions I have is, you know, ultimately, you know, we're still trying to figure out exactly what kind of player he's going to be. Um, you know, I think that there are certainly, you know, great potential, great ceiling on him, you know, teams that that would love a player of, of his size and athletic ability. Um, but, you know, I I don't think going there clearly hasn't opened up any new avenues in his game. I don't think that there's anything that has materially changed um, one way or the other. I, I do think, you know, defending on North American ice is a different animal. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly more to the walls and more, you know, you're, you're still playing between the dots and in internationally, but there's just all that extra space gives it, you know, makes it a little bit, you know, different, different in terms of closing gaps and things like that. But, I think in general, I don't think it pushes anything back for him. You know, if if nothing else, it gives him an idea of what else he still needs to work on. I mean, you know, I haven't watched a ton of his games in Rogla. Uh, so, you know, I, I I couldn't really say definitively, you know, in terms of where he's at right now in terms of 
you know, NHL timeline. Um, but you know, I, I don't think going to Europe was going to materially change his, his developmental trajectory. All right. And then Corey, we'll close with you here. You alluded to it uh, a moment ago. Charlie Douglas wants to know about Quinton Musty he says, it seems like he's dominating the OHL this year, but given his age, he's still not able to go to the AHL next year. What's the best developmental path for him to take given that? Yeah, obviously. So Sudbury has been having a great season this year, ever since Dalbor Dvorsky came to Sudbury, that power play has been on fire. That team's been on fire. Whether Dvorsky will be back next year is something that's not clear. Unlike Musty, he does have the option to go to the American League. I do wonder if St. Louis would exercise that option to bring him up to the American League next year. So now he goes, if Musty goes back, he doesn't have quite the supporting gap. Goyet's probably going to be gone. Dvorsky's going to be gone. There'll be a more difficult environment for him to succeed in. And I think that is the path. I don't think you bring him up to the Sharks next year. I mean, it really depends on what happens. I mean, if they are, if you're bringing in a bunch of kids like if Will Smith's coming in and whoever they pick high comes in uh, this season, maybe it's different because you, you're you're trying to build around some kids. But if if it's just going to be a lot of losing again, like let's say Smith goes back, let's say they pick whoever in this draft left Shunov and he goes back, for example, like it, it may not make a whole lot of sense to bring in Musty to maybe maybe for a couple of games and you send him back if he has a good camp. But I think you look at a similar style of player, like say like a Dylan Strome, for example. Like that guy took years for him to be ready for the NHL. Like and I think when you when you are a super good skater like Musty is, who isn't extremely competitive, I think that's going to be a really tough transition to the NHL as a teenager. Let him go back, let him dominate the OHL, go to another contender, go on the World Junior team and play well at the World Juniors. Uh, that is the better path for him. I think. All right, and that is going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Athletic Hockey Show Prospect Series. You can catch more of Chris, of course, over at Flow Hockey and on his podcast, Talking Hockey Sense. And right now, get a one-year subscription to The Athletic for $2 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash hockey show. We'll talk to you soon.